Today we're going we're to jump right back in uh, to, to the stories of the, of the, in the life of Daniel. And as we began last week, we kind of just waded into the stories of, of the Israelites and they're in the exile. And, and, and we, we said we're going to learn some incredible things about faith in the wild. And what we learned last week is that God is in control and, be, and can be trusted with your life. And that's a big deal. And that's, a, that's like a big deal. Like that's the deal. That God is in control and can be trusted with your life. And we, what we said is, is really the big deal is that God is in control and can be trusted with the details details of your life. Not just the big moments, not just the huge moments, not just the moments where we go, okay, I know this is a big one. I better trust God. But in the moments where it's just the small little everyday stuff, we said, just like Daniel did, we can learn to trust God with the small everyday, seems insignificant stuff. And if we'll trust God with the details of our life, God will do far more with our obedience than we can ever do with our own effort. And that's really where we jumped in last week as we looked at the story of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys who, who were kind of caught in the middle of, of, of the story of, you know, like, hey, we here we're in, we're in a foreign land. The food's different. The food is such that we can't eat it and stay in good graces with God according to the law as we know it and according to God as we know him. So we can't eat what you're putting in front of us, but we want to be respectful. So how do we do that? And so that's where we've been last week. And like I said last week, I kind of set this up last week. Last week was really wading into the craziness, into the wildness of Babylon. Again, to, if, if you missed last week, the Israelites had lived in their country for 600 years. After 600 years and after about 300 years of ignoring God and rejecting God and saying, God, we don't really want anything to do with you. God had continued to try to build a relationship. God was patient, 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 and eventually God sent them into exile. And God sent them into the into exile. He conquered, he, he had established another nation named Babylon that conquered the land of Israel and took all the Israelites to the land of Babylon. So they're in Babylon. They're under the rule of a foreign king named Nebuchadnezzar, who is a bad guy, even though history, you know, like regardless of what you think of him, Nebuchadnezzar is definitely a bad guy's name, right? It's definitely a bad guy's name. And so today we're going to jump right into the story of, of, of Daniel chapter three. And I said last week was, was waiting in. Right now it's about to get Heat it up, all right? And that's, and, that's, and that's a pun for many reasons. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Okay, to give you a little perspective, this room from front to back is about 70 feet. This statue was tall. It was large. It was meant to be seen, meant to be noticed. It was taller than this room is long. 90 feet high and nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, this was an incredibly common thing in Babylon. Um, one of the things that as you study history, as you study Nebuchadnezzar's life, Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who built kingdoms. He built things. He built places. He built statues. He built temples. In fact, when you read, when you read through it, he's a guy who built a kingdom. That, that Babylon was not an existing kingdom that he took over and, and, some, and, 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 and you know, just kept it going. He essentially, he was the guy who defeated the Assyrian Empire, and then he built the Babylon. 
Babylonian kingdom. He built at least 13 cities that did not exist before. He just built 13 cities. He's like, we need a city here, a city here, a city there, a city there, a city there, a city there. We need a whole bunch of cities in, that were strategically placed around the Babylonian empire. He built them from scratch and built them to be incredible cities, some of which still exist to this day. He built, some historians say, he built more temples than any other ruler in the ancient world. He just was like, hey, we need people to remember that there's a God of this empire. There's a God of this empire and there's a God here. There's a God, there's a God there. He built more temples than anyone. He built a whole lot of statues. If you've ever heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, do you know that one of them was the hanging gardens of Babylon? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar is widely believed to have built the hanging gardens of Babylon. He was a guy that liked to build stuff. He was a guy that liked to construct large projects. He was one of the first rulers in the ancient world to invent a structure that would bring water from one location into another location. He built running water. So Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I mean, this, this is crazy. He, 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 he was one of the first people in the world to do that. This is crazy. I mean, he was a builder of things. So, so the idea that Nebuchadnezzar built something and wants to have a dedication service, if you live in the Babylonian Empire, and if you're one of his, one of his governors or one of the, you know, the religious leaders or one of the people that's in charge in the government, you're like, oh, good, yawn, just you know, an, an, another statue, another dedication, Oh, do we have to buy a new outfit because I bought a new outfit for the last time he did this and that was just two weeks ago? I mean, this is, this is just another day, another statue, another dedication. This is just a normal thing that's, that's going on. But in the midst of the normal thing going on, there was something abnormal going on. In verse four, we're told this, a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language. So this is an official dude. This is guy steps to the forefront, gets on a platform, I'm guessing much larger than the one that I'm standing on. And he says, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. In other words, this isn't an instruction. This isn't an idea. This is something you got to do. So you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then he says this, but whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Things escalated kind of quickly, didn't they? You could say things heated up. I'm a dad, guys. Okay, that's the best jokes I've got, okay? This is, this is one of those consequences. By the way, this is a consequence that you set up to make sure no one thinks about challenging it. This is a ridiculous consequence, right? Like, hey, if you don't bow down to my statue, you get thrown in jail. Okay, all right, that's fine. You know, if, you don't get th- if you don't bow down to the statue, you get a fine. Okay, we can deal with that. If you don't bow down to my statue, I'm going to throw you into a burning furnace. What? I mean, this, this, is, this is crazy. This is, one of the, this is what I would call a governor's or a ruler's heat check. I mean, again, the puns are bad here. This is a heat check. If, if any of you have ever played basketball, how many of you guys have played basketball? Anybody in here consider yourselves good at basketball? Good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. One, one hand up. That's probably about the number in a room. This like that, that, that's about the right number. Uh, but in, in basketball, there's this, there's this phrase called a heat check where, where someone gets hot and they make a basket and they make a basket, they make a basket. They hit a three, they hit another three, they hit another three, they hit another three. And eventually they start thinking, I can't miss. And so they start taking shots that they normally wouldn't take because they think, well, maybe tonight I'm just hot and I can hit from anywhere. And so they do what's called a heat check and they step six feet out beyond the three point line and only Steph Curry can really hit from there. But they put one up and they're like, oh, miss. Okay, that was a heat check. That was just to see how well I'm doing. And what Nebuchadnezzar was doing is he was going, as the ruler of this area, I've done a lot for the people of Babylon. I've done a lot for the people that worship me. I didn't even kill all the people in the nations that we took over. I spared their lives. Let's see what I can get them to do as far as worship 
of me. This is a ruler's heat check. This is a, this is a rule designed to make sure this is a consequence so big, no one would dare refuse this. At the same time, I would imagine the guy reading this is like, what? Like he starts off, people of every nation. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. We're going to throw you into a blade. What? I mean, it's just crazy. Verse 7 then says this. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Of course they did. Of course they did. Because if the, if the option is exist as a person or get thrown into a burning furnace, I think I'd like to continue existing as a person. I'll just continue existing as a person and that's going to be great. And if it means I've got to bow down to the statue, I'll bow down to the statue. And that's a good reminder for us. And this isn't going to be on the screens or anything like this, but, but here's what I want to make sure you understand. When you have nothing worth worshiping, you will find yourself worshiping things that do not matter. You will, you will find yourself giving attention, giving devotion, giving worship, bowing, I mean, probably not bowing down because we don't really do that anymore, but you'll spend your time and you'll spend your energy and you'll spend your attention focused on things that do not matter. When you do not have life based on something that actually does matter, and when you do not have something that actually does matter for the rest of time, you will give yourself and you'll give your life and your attention and your time and your focus to things that don't really Matter. The story goes on because there were some guys in the kingdom who did have their life based on some things that did matter. In verse 8 it says this, Some Chaldeans, or that's some Babylonians, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. In other words, they're kind of suck-ups, all right? Like, oh, the king, we want you to live forever. We think you're so amazing. May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a, blazing furn a furnace of blazing fire. Now, as a dad, I have already learned, if, if, if my child is reminding me of a rule that I have set up, it's not because they're worried about them following it, right? Should, if, if, if my daughter is telling me about something, some rule that I've set up, it's because the other kid is doing it, right? And these guys are not concerned that like, hey, we just want to let you know we're totally doing what you said. They're about to tattle on someone else. They're doing the toddler, the toddler method of getting someone else in trouble. In verse 12, it says, There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you. Would you guys say ignored you? These men have ignored you, the king. In other words, they're not, they're not listening. It's not just that they're ignoring the police and they're ignoring some government. They're ignoring you. This is an attack on you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now, here's the thing. Again, this is, this is such a big deal. Last week, we learned about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We learned their Hebrew names of Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. But like, we, we learned that these were guys who followed God and they paid attention to God. And even though they were in a foreign land and in a foreign country, they were not about to give up on the God who had, who had, who had been faithful to them and had been faithful to them even while they were in exile. And as, as they were faithful to God, God stayed faithful to them even in exile. And as they stayed faithful to God, God elevated them and God put them in positions where they they were not to be messed with. And I just want to remind us here, and this is something that we should pay attention to. People will use against you the very thing that God uses to prosper you. 
that God had used their faithfulness to prosper them. And at some point along the way, they looked, other people looked from the outside and they went, these guys are faithful to God and that seems to be what's gonna prosper them. Let's use that against them. And there will be times in your life and my life where people will use against us the very thing that God uses to prosper us. It might be things like you believe in God. People who work in this field can't believe in, in, in science fiction and, and believe in myths and believe in you know whatever. Or you follow God and do the right thing. Sorry, we need people here who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Or, oh, you like Jesus? That's so great. Oh, you're, a G- you're kind of like, you're like really into Jesus? Sorry. Like, I don't date people who are that into Jesus, who are that into religious things. There will be a time in your life where your faith will cost you something. And at those times, I think one of the things that we can get so backwards on is we say things like, well, my faith is under attack. Anyone ever said something like that? My faith is under attack. I need to defend my faith. My faith is under attack. I'm, I, I, my, my faith is under attack. And I just want to Maybe tell us something that I think we need to, be, to, to under, understand. Your faith isn't really under attack. You're under attack. And your faith is meant to be your shield. Your faith is meant to be the thing that defends you. See, your faith does not need defending. If you're a believer in Jesus, your faith is not, is not fragile and does not need you to defend it. Your faith is based on a person and an event, something that happened when Jesus went to the cross and he died for your sins. And we know he died for your sins because after he rose from the dead, he told you that he died for your sins. Your faith is not weak and fragile in need of a defense. You are sometimes weak and fragile and in need of defense. And your faith is meant to be the shield protecting you. You don't need to step out and protect your faith. Your faith is stronger than crucifixion nails. Your faith is stronger than Roman steel. Your faith is stronger than 10 ton stones. Your faith is stronger than Roman persecution. The Christian faith has endured forever. The Christian faith does not need defending. You need defending. And so here's what happens so often. We get an attack from over here and we think, well, my faith's under attack. And so my faith is here. The arrows are coming from there and we're over here and we're thinking, oh, I got to defend my faith. I got to defend my faith. And so we get ourselves over here going, I got to defend my faith. And what happens is we end up taking the arrows that our faith was meant to shield us from. Does that make sense? And so we need to understand our faith is strong. Our faith is big. Our faith does not need to be defended. We need to be defended and we need to sometimes just understand that we need to be patient and let Jesus be the shield for us that he has promised to be. Jesus is strong. People will use against you the very thing that God uses to prosper you. Moving on in the story, verse 13, it says this, Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's in a furious rage. He's handling it very well, right? So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true? I imagine this isn't like a royal official, like, hi, I'd like to be dignified. He's like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we got to have a talk, all right? Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, if you're ready to be reasonable, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, do you imagine, like every time it repeats this phrase, I'm like, did they really say this every time? Because now I'm saying it every time. Drum and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. If you're ready to be reasonable, you will do that. He says, but if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And then he says this, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Now let's talk about the blazing fire for a little bit. The Babylonians perfected or invented and perfected a little phrase called metallurgy. Would you guys say metallurgy? 
metallurgy is up to this time, the only metals that existed were pure metals. They would find the metal, they would heat it up a little bit, form it into whatever they wanted to form it into. And then metal, and the metal was only as strong as whatever the pure metal was. What the Babylonians did is they invented the, what, what's called metallurgy is the combining of, met, of metals. And in order to combine metals, you need incredibly hot furnaces. You need, you need, you need I mean, they, they, from what I read, they said that these furnaces needed to be something like 12 times hotter than the existing furnaces that would melt and, and allow you to shape one single metal. So 12 times hotter. In other words, they didn't have to, why, the reason I tell you that, they didn't have to go invent a furnace for this. They had them. They had these furnaces that were 12 times hotter than any furnace that existed anywhere else on the earth. And, the, and, and they just went, okay, hey, we got the statue. If you don't go to the statue, we're just going to go use on you the thing that melts precious metals and that we use to form our weapons. That's what we're going to use on you. And so this, they didn't have to go looking for the furnaces. They didn't even have to really go looking for a punishment. This already existed. So they did not have to build a furnace. And then at the same time, it's like, okay, this is intimidating. This is a big deal. But when he says, who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Don't you feel like it's automatically on? Like, if you're reading this, you're like, oh, now it's, okay, okay, this king, this earthly, like, all right, it's on. Okay, it, now, now it's about to get real. Something about, is crazy about to happen. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing to say? Like, hey, king, you know, we have respect to you. We work for you, um, but we're not even going to answer your question. Not every question is worth answering. That's just something good to know. Last week we talked about the idea that, that you don't have to be dismissive and you don't have to be disrespectful to be disagreeable. In this, we're like, look, anything that they would have said beyond this would have been disrespectful and would have been dismissive. Like, look, we, we obviously disagree. We can't really say anything that, that's going to convince you. We can't give you an answer that's going to change your mind. We just simply, I mean, he's, they're, they're going, look, Nebuchadnezzar, you knew our stance. You knew our opinion before you made this rule. You knew our, our opinion, you knew our stance when you, when you announced it. This isn't a surprise to you, Nebuchadnezzar. You shouldn't be surprised by this. So we're not, we're not going to answer the question. Then they, they say this. If the God that we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. If the God that we serve exists, okay, we're, we're putting ourselves out there. And, and, and our God, he may not exist. I mean, we, we might, you know, who knows? He may not. But if he does exist, and if the God that we believe in exists, he's big enough, we know he's big enough to save us from the furnace. And we know he's big enough to save us from you. And then they say this, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Now, this is not defiance. Sometimes people look at this and they go, wow, look at that, defiance in the face of a king. Nope, this isn't all about defiance. This is about faith-filled obedience. They said, look, we believe that there is one God and he is the only one deserving of our honor and our praise and our worship and our attention. And if he saves us, awesome. If he doesn't save us, that's fine too. He's God, he gets to make the call, not us and not you. Look, what we have to understand from here is simply this. The real faith obeys and it leaves the outcome to God. Real faith obeys and it leaves the outcome to God. What they said is like, we're going to obey God. We're going to obey God. We're going to obey God. And you can throw us into the fire. And we believe that if we obey God, we believe that God can rescue us from the fire. And we, we believe that if we obey God, God maybe will rescue us from the fire. They didn't know. But they had no idea what was going to happen. They just simply knew they were responsible to obey God. God. And what real faith does is real faith says, look, we're going to obey no matter what the outcome is. 
We're going to obey and we're going to follow God and we're going to trust God. And we're going to trust him with the details of our life. And we're going to trust him with these massive moments. I mean, this was not a small, little, insignificant detail. Everyone in the room knew this is the moment. This is a moment. This is a test of faith moment. This is a real deal moment. This is like, hey, our faith is definitely being tested in this moment. And we will be tested and we will be tried. And we will either be found wanting or we will be found faithful. And they decided that we're going to be people who really trust God enough to obey him. And we're going to obey him whether the consequences are good or whether the outcome is terrible. Whatever the outcome is, we believe that is God's providential reign and rule. And he gets to decide what he wants to do. But we're simply going to be faithful to what we were called to do. For some of you, I'm just telling you, like we, we, we obey as long as we go, okay, God, as long as you do what I want you to do out of my obedience, then I'm going to obey. That's not real faith. Real faith says, God, I'm going to obey, and you get to decide what the outcome is. Real faith says you can be honest and leave the outcome to God. You can tell the whole truth and leave the outcome to God. You can love your wife. Husbands, you can love your wife and leave the outcome to God. Many of us husbands, we love our wives, and if, if, if it doesn't seem to work right away, I don't, I don't even know what that means, but like, I'm going to love my wife as long as she likes me, and it's like, no, 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 no. You love your wife, and you leave the outcome to God. You can work as hard as you can and leave the outcome to God. You can sell your hardest and leave the outcome to God. You can keep your dating standards high and leave the outcome to God. You can do what's right even when it's difficult and leave the outcome to God. That's what real faith does. Real faith says, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what you would have me to do. And whatever you want to do out of that, that's up to you. That's what real faith looks like. Real faith doesn't say, God, as long as you follow up with what I want to do, I'll do what you want me to do. No, no, no. Real faith says, I'm going to obey. And God, you get to decide the outcome. Verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. So in other words, this is, this, the, the fire is getting, getting even hotter. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? And Nebuchadnezzar, who had said, and who is the God who can save you? He should have known that if there's a fourth guy now in the fire, that this just might be something fishy going. This might just be a God thing that's going up. That when they said, if our God exists, he can save you, he should have known, oh man, oh, it's happening. Just like they said, okay? So, so verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, would you guys say look? Look, look. I see four men not tied. We, we tied them up. There's four men. We threw three, and now there's four. We threw them in tied, and they're not tied. They're walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. See, this is brilliant. Nebuchadnezzar, this, this foreign king, this king who does not believe what they believe, does not practice the religion that they practice, does not believe anything that they believe, does not believe in their God, the only thing that he knows how to express here is like, what I'm seeing looks like it could only come from God. And I don't think it's the God that I believe in. 
And I don't think it's the God that any of us are worshiping here in Babylon. This is something different. And here's the thing that we need to, just from this, from this little chunk, I just want to remind us that your current conditions, they're not a referendum on the goodness of God. The goodness of God, in other words, the goodness of God is not conditional on the goodness of your life. That God can be incredibly good and life can look incredibly bad at any given moment and the two things can be equally true. That God is not as good as life. God is far better than life. God is far, I mean, life, life will chew you up, spit you out and, and throw away the bones. God, I mean, God, like God, God, and, and, God can, and God will still be good through it all. Life can be absolutely terrible. You can lose your job and God can still be good. You can, you can get broken up with and God can still be good. You can, you can have a miscarriage and God can still be good. You can, you can find yourself in a situation in school when it comes to your schoolwork where it's like, hey, f- pay attention to God or pay attention to my school. I don't know how I do both. And, 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 you, and you think it's just desperate and you can't figure it out and, and God can still be good. Then no matter what, you, what situation you go through in life, God is good. And the goodness of God in this situation is not that he stepped up before they ever got thrown into the fire. The goodness of God is that when they were in the fire, God went into the fire with them. It's why we sing that song. There's a song that we sing called Another in the Fire and it says, there's another in the fire standing next to me. And the rest of the song, I mean, it's just incredibly beautiful. But that line, that when you go into the fire, there's someone, there's a God, there's a Savior, there's a God who loves you, who doesn't protect you from the fire, although we wish he would. He doesn't always protect us from the fire, but he walks into the fire with us, and he's the shield that guards us from the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this as, as a guy who didn't believe, as a guy who was skeptical of, the, I mean, like, as a king, as a ruler, He's going, I'm, I'm in charge. Who can save you from my power? And he sees firsthand that there is a God who can save them from his power. There is a higher power. There is a higher authority. His name is God. His son is Jesus. And Jesus walks into the flames with us. The story concludes this way. In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. Now, this is so funny. They had to be thrown in. He's like, apparently you guys can just walk out anytime you want. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire by their own choice. Just imagine if they were like, nah, we good. Now, here's, now here's the thing. They could have done that. But I think then they might have just happened to start burning up because there's a difference between faith and stupidity, okay? Stupidity is, you know what? Hey, God protected me and you call this out. We're going to stay here to prove a point. And once you start proving the point, Jesus is like, yeah, I'm out. You're done. Okay, like... There's a point where it's like, hey, when you have the lifeline, take it, all right? So he says, look, come on out. So they came out because why would they possibly say that? Like, we like saunas, we don't like this, all right? When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, because they were all there. Again, they were, everyone was present. This wasn't just a sign for Nebuchadnezzar. This was a sign for every governor, every ruler, every authority in the Babylonian kingdom. When they gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Not a hair of their hands was singed. And I would imagine like, the only way to know that is to like get close and smell. No smell of burning hair. All right. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. 
They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Now, he, he's not writing this. He didn't say this for us knowing that 2,600 years later we would be reading it in New Mexico. He said that to everyone who was under his authority. Just imagine the, the, the weight of this moment. The king saying, praise be to their God because they defied my command and in doing so, they risked their lives. And you know, everyone around is going like, so are you telling us we should do that more? Like, and you're like no, no, it's not what, not what anyone's saying. But here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, it says, because of what we've just seen, therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a person of extremes, right? Like, you're like, hey, you don't serve my, you don't worship my statue. I'm throwing you into fire. Hey, these guys, they decided not to bow down. And if you don't, if you say anything bad about their God, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and make your house a garbage dump. Like, you know, not a reasonable man, all right? This isn't the sign of maturity, okay? Like, you know, he's like good at battle, good at building things, good at handling situations. Not so much, all right? And so then he says this, this is, this is, this is the line. Then he says, for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. From the lips of a foreign king, from the lips of a, of a king who did not know and did not pay attention to God's law, from the lips of a, of a king who had built many towers and many statues and many temples in his own honor and to his own gods and to the God of Marduk and to, and to, and to, and to the gods of Bab Babylon, he said, okay, you know, those temples are nice, but there's no God who can deliver and who can save like their God. And so here's the, here's the bottom line. Here's the, here's the thing I, I hope we can just really understand and, and wrap our minds around. It's simply this. God takes full responsibility for the life fully devoted to him. That, God, that, that when we step up with faithfulness, when we step up and say, God, my life, it's just fully devoted to you. Whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Wherever you want me to go, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you want me to say, that's what I'm going to say. Whatever, whoever you want me to be, that's who I want to be. I'm just simply giving you my life, and I'm giving you control, and I'm giving you influence, and I'm giving you the ability to set the direction of my life. When we come to a place of surrender, God takes our surrender and says, I'll match your surrender with my full responsibility. With everything that I've got, if you're willing to give me everything that you've got, I'll give you everything that I've got. If, you, if you'll give me everything that you have, I'll give you everything that I have. And when you step up with faithfulness, God meets it with taking responsibility for your life. That in this moment, it seemed like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that almost like they were being irresponsible with their own lives. Instead, they were being fully devoted to God, knowing that God would be fully responsible for whatever happened and whatever outcome would come as a result of their actions. 
God takes full responsibility for the life that's fully devoted to him. Fully devoted means that you trust God with the details of your life. Fully devoted means that you obey and you trust God with the outcome. Fully devoted means that when, when people step up against you and they say, we're going to take the thing that, you, that, has, that God has used to prosper you and we're going to use it against you, that we don't turn our back on God when that happens. That when life gets really difficult, we don't equate life with God. Fully devoted means when life gets really bad, we don't turn our, our, our backs and we don't turn our attention away from God. We lean in. That's what it means to be fully devoted. I remember when I was, when I was coming out of college, I'd, I'd gone to Bible, Bible college um, to, to, be a, to be a pastor. And I was 20, uh, 22 when I graduated. I was 22 when I graduated. And um, I graduated in, in December. And December is not like a great time to be hired as a youth pastor. And so for the next semester, I, kinda, I, I had committed that I was going to do a one-year internship that started in August. And I had already done one year, so I was totally going to do a, a two-year internship. So I was going to go August to August. And my hope was that somewhere over the next couple of months, I would... Um, be hired uh, and, and, and go through the interview process and all that, and, and, and it was just kind of an interesting situation. And I remember um, over the course of those, those couple months, I, had, I must have had 13 different job interviews. I got offered five of them, which, I, which is not a bad, you know, not, not a terrible, when there's only like one job to be gotten, you know, I, I was offered five of them. And uh, five of the offers came somewhere between April and June, um, and I was, I mean, I was, like, there was, some of them were really, really good job offers. Some of them were really easy to say no to. Um, but but um, I, I remember going and interviewing, and, and my hope was I hope to be a youth pastor. I hope to get to work full-time in church ministry, and I think that would be amazing. That's what I feel like God called me to do. Um, and I remember in the middle of that, after, after the first interview that I went on, I came back, and the youth pastor that I had been interning under, he pulled me aside. He said, hey, I just wanted to have a conversation with you. I know you're interviewing at different places. I just wanted to let you know what's coming up here. He said, I'm going to be leaving here to go back to grad school to start a nonprofit and, and to do some, some things that he really felt called to do. And, and what he is doing today is absolutely amazing. He said, I know everyone around here would love it if you stayed on past your internship to be the interim youth pastor. And I know there's a pretty good chance that you would be hired to be the youth pastor here eventually. And I thought, okay. That really doesn't jive with my plans. And I said jive because apparently I'm, a, I'm 100 years old. Anyway, and so, and so I, I was like, well, that's, that's weird because what, I, I knew that there was going to be no bump in pay. I knew I would be working for $100 a week and I would be working 40 hours a week for $100 a week, which if you're really good at math means I would be working for $2.50 a week. And I thought I, I will be doing full-time ministry, but I'll have to work on the side and able to be, to, in order to be able to afford to do full-time ministry. Um, and I just thought, I, you know, I went to school. I have, I have a little bit of student loan debt. And, I've, you know, like I've got, like I've, I want to I live, you know, I want to eat and, I, you know, and, all, and all this stuff. And I remember thinking like, okay, but, you know, I'll pray about this because this is a church that it's invested in me and I love, the, love this church and I love the leadership here. So I'll pray about it. And I, and I, and I said, it was one of those things where I said, I'll pray about it, meaning I'm not really going to pray about it. Like, like I'll pray about it, but in that way of like, God, please don't let the answer be yes. Like, like just, you know, I, and so, so, I, so, I, so I had one job offer on the table. I, I had this thing that popped up. And in the next three weeks, I got another job offer and another job offer and another job offer and another job offer. So I'm sitting on five job offers and a basically unpaid internship. And I, and I go to God in prayer and I'm like, God, I know what I would like to do. And there was one job that I thought was really attractive and I really liked the church and I liked where it was and I thought it was going to be a, a really good fit. And I remember God saying, you're not done here. 
that I was so mad. <laughs> like, I was like, God, okay, God, let me, let, me bro, pull out, let me pull out the salary package and the benefits package and, 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 and where it is and, like, and, you know, and the trajectory. Of the, like, I was like, God, this would be really cool. And, and I remember God saying, I'm not done with you here, and I really am not done with you here. I remember God saying, like, feeling like what God was really saying, like, I want you here, but not because you need to be here, but because you will learn something here that you won't learn anywhere else. And I'm not done shaping you here. And I remember thinking in that moment, this is one of those moments where if I truly believe God like I think I believe in God, and if I truly trust God like I think I trust God, I have to follow God. And I have to believe that if I stay fully devoted to who God wants me to be and what God wants me to do, that God's going to take responsibility for the, for the outcome of this decision and God's going to lead me to something good. And so I remember thinking, okay, so, so what that means is, you know, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And then I'll get hired like I think I should get hired. And then, you know, life is just going to kind of, you know, keep going on from there and it's going to be good, 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 good. And here's what happened. I stayed on as the interim youth pastor and then they hired someone else. And for the associate job, they hired someone else. And in that moment, I thought, well, that's frustrating. <laughs> that's not what was supposed to happen. And that's when I learned that real faith obeys God and it trusts God with the outcome. And for the next two years, I mean, in, in that one and a half months time period, I sat on five and ultimately a sixth job offer that I said no to so I could stay at this unpaid thing. And I was like, I trust God, believing that this was what was going to happen. In the next two years, I had no job offers in, in ministry. And I remember feeling really, really frustrated going, God, what are you up to? Where would you have me to go? I mean, God, I, you know, I kind of thought maybe I could stay somewhere in the Midwest and, and get really, you know, whatever. And I remember eventually one day, like there's these ministry search websites where you can like find jobs in ministry. And I remember like I had, I had clicked on, like I'll go to the 47 states. You know, like I, I'll go to 47, you know, I'm not going to go to Alaska I don't really want to go to Hawaii. I don't want to live there. Like, I'll go vacation someday. And then I had said no to New Mexico for some reason. And so I'd I unclicked these places that I had, you know, that I had said no to. And this job offer popped up, in, or this job opening popped up in Alamogordo, New Mexico. At, at a church that weirdly I had heard of, in a city that weirdly I had heard of. And I remember thinking, well, what are the chances <laughs> What are the chances that this day and the job that, that popped up had been posted the day before? And through the interview process, I was just like, you know what? This is right. This is right. This is right. This is what I've been waiting for. And when I got the job and when I started in ministry in Alamogordo, New Mexico, I thought, this is right. This is what I've been waiting for. And without, and without the patience and the trust and, the, and, and, and all that stuff, I mean, I wouldn't have ended up in Alamogordo, New Mexico. I wouldn't have met Jalen. I wouldn't have met my wife. wouldn't have the kids that I have. Movement Church would not exist because I would have never heard of Las Cruces, New Mexico. And I'm just saying, there is a moment where we have to come to understand that we can trust God and obey God and trust God with the outcomes because God really does take full responsibility for the life that's fully devoted to him. And in that two-year time span, let me tell you what, there was never a time I went hungry. There was never a bill that I couldn't pay. There was never a doctor I couldn't go see. God took full responsibility for the life that was fully devoted to him. And so here's what God always brings to the life that are, that's fully surrendered to him. There's two things. Number one is he brings his presence. He brings his presence. 
God always, with, with the life that's fully, responsive, that's fully devoted to him, when you, when you fully devote your life to God, God's presence always goes with you. It goes with you in the fire. It goes you, with you on the sunny day. It goes with you when, when, the, when the sky is full of rainbows and unicorns and, and cotton candy is falling from the sky. Some of you, they're like, that sounds terrible. But like, that, that's, you know, like, when life is as amazing as it could be and the relationship that you're in is good and when your marriage is fantastic, God is with you and his presence is there. And when marriage gets a little bit rough and parenting is more difficult than you thought and you lose the job, God is there as well. His presence goes with the person who is fully devoted to him. And then the second thing that goes with the person fully devoted to him is God always brings his protection. That what the enemy meant to destroy you won't. Now this is not a guarantee that nothing hits you. But it's a guarantee that whatever comes at you, it has to go through God first. That God will be the shield, that he'll be the protection. So God's presence and his protection, they always go with the life that's fully devoted to him. So here's the question I want to ask us today. Are you a life that's fully devoted to God? Are you a life that says, God, look, whatever you want, yes. Wherever you want, yes. If you want my unconditional surrender, I give my unconditional surrender. If you, if you want me to take this job that I don't understand why it would possibly be good, I'll take that job. If you want me to start a conversation with this person in a coffee shop that I don't even know and I don't know why I would start a conversation with them, I'll just do that. We give our lives to God, understanding that he will take full responsibility for the life fully devoted to him. That's who he is and that's what he always does. Let me pray for you.